American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. April 1805, Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. April 1805, Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. April 1805, Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. April 1805. Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. This is Podcaster and Commander an audio documentary podcast series about the seafaring classic Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. The series will be an oral history of the film's conception and production, a discussion of the film's critical reception, and the increasing resonance in the now 20 years since its release. The black ocean taking shape with the moonlight ripples. And the lack of colour could also be oil or blood rippling outward, registering a mass. Proof of life for the souls aboard. As the topographic camera races, the moonlight traces the entangled shapes of the mast, the sails, the seeming mass of ropes, and the frigate comes into full view. The quiet roar of the ocean shifts and scales down with the camera. As the point of view pivots from the ocean to the force driving the boat, the wind begins a quiet howl, an English flag billows. The shape of waves moving and encircling. The title arrives. Master and Commander. The far side of the world. After the title and the nearly contextless elemental immersion were oriented. HMS Surprise. 28 guns, 197 souls. North Coast Brazil. And rather than this abstraction, the camera's height and stillness wants us to take measure of this small vessel. This tiny, creaking sanctuary, powered by man's mastery of nature. The miracle of Master and Commander starts right from the beginning. That with studio badges, three titles, and this scoreless, impressionist opening that happens in two minutes and 13 seconds, we basically know exactly what we need to drive the plotting of the film. And after this point, plot fades, character, vibes, the experiential supersedes. We're into the bowels of this ship, creaking, shifting, and 
steadily undulating in the water. The crewmates are barely seen scaling ladders into the next parts of the ship. V-shaped hull is a nurturing feminine force. Implicitly here is their mother, protecting them from the outside world and needing their protection. But who's aboard this crew? What souls are aboard this podcast? In order of appearance rather than rank. Co-writer of Master and Commander of the Far Side of the World, John Colley. You've just got to let the dream speak to you and uh, and, uh, and not try and deconstruct it because otherwise you might destroy the magic. Former film critic at the LA Weekly and Village Voice turned filmmaker and screenwriter of Black Christmas and the former host of the Switchblade Sisters podcast, April Wolf. They're just easy, easily identifiable as weird, right? Um, because he hasn't been diluted by Hollywood. Academy Award-winning director of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Peter Ramsey. For me, that's his essence is, you know, a guy who can take a story that's happening in a, in a world that, you know, we know with preoccupations we all get, but infuse this like deeper layer of, uh, of meaning and questioning into it. One of the greatest living film critics whose episode of Netflix is profane and profound is one of the best film critiques of the century and Walter Hill chronicler, Walter Chaw. Peter Weir is such a visionary. Writer-director behind films like Happily and TV series Are You Afraid of the Dark and the untitled Scott Pilgrim anime series Ben David Grabinski. Uh, Gallipoli was the first movie that ever traumatized me and I don't think I ever really recovered from it. Online veteran, film critic, screenwriter, industry analyst, the legendary Drew McQueen. What makes Peter Weir special and what makes you doing this one special is we don't talk about Peter Weir that way and we should. And finally, senior editor and critic at Rolling Stone and the former editor of Time Out New York, David Fear. Really just going because I was like, it's Peter Weir. I'll see anything that Peter Weir does. I had been a long time Peter Weir fan since, you know, seeing Gallipoli as a young formative lad uh, with my parents, uh, also in a theater because I'm that old. Your narrator for the series is me, Ken Jacob. Theme doctor, Andrew Villa. And I am your captain, Blake Howard. Master and commander, from novel to screenplay. Let's hear now from writer John Colley, the trusted Maturin to Peter Weir's Lucky Jack, a real-life physician turned writer whose adventures inform his style. I suppose I'd, when I went to university in Edinburgh, um, I'd always been interested in writing. It was always a, a kind of a, a hobby of mine and, uh, and something I was good at at school. And uh, But in those days um, in Edinburgh, there were kind of three or four... four uh, uh, professions that one's parents approved of, you know, <laughs> which were kind of law medicine or, and um, and a career in the arts wasn't really a thing, you know, and so um, uh, I went into medicine like the rest of my family. My sister and my brother both studied medicine also, and and you know we have a bit of a family business. I mean, lots of the the kids have gone into it as well. So, um, yeah, that was me, and and actually, weirdly, as a as a as a kind of a as a way into writing, it was ex- it was extraordinarily um, good decision because you end up being uh, in possession of a whole lot of secret knowledge, you know, and and you're you're exposed 
as a young doctor daily to life, death, sort of tragedy, sorrow. Um, and yeah, and so as I look back, um, you know, when, when, when young people come to me now and say, how do I become a writer? I say, go and have, have adventures, which is what I did. And, and that then becomes the raw material of your writing career. Of course, I didn't plan it like that. I was thought I was going to be a doctor and probably end up in a <laughs> work. But, um, but the writing started off. I started writing novels initially, and, and the novels did reasonably well, and one of them got made into a movie. And so, yeah, it, it gradually took over uh, from, my, uh, from my medical life. And, and finally, when we had kids, I'd actually been working quite a lot in the third world um, doing aid work, and my wife Debs was a journalist. When we started to have a family, um, uh, Debs felt um, she'd need to be in a capital city to carry on doing her job, and uh, and that would involve me, kind of coming back home and and uh, and becoming a hospital doctor. And and when I did that, I discovered that I'd actually become completely de-skilled by working in these out of the way places for many years, and uh, and wasn't really up to speed with all of the um, you know the fancy new way of doing things and so it was actually not quite such a, a wrench as it might have been. I also at the time had landed a job with the Observer newspaper which is a, a newspaper in Britain which gave me a job writing what started off as a medical column but ended up just being a kind of story of travels and kind of philosophy and science and whatever I wanted to write about. It was actually a great gig as I did that for six years and that was the kind of transition into full-time writing. You know, there is a kind of a hunger, I think all of us suffer from this a kind of hunger for um, more acute, more immediate experience. And, you know, one of the criticisms I have, I have now of, uh, of the kind of Marvel universe and, there's, and the kind of sort of screenwriting that seems to dominate now is that so little of it, or a lot of it is not based on real life experience of real events. It's based on kind of this becomes a kind of uh, collection of best moments from previous movies that the writers have seen so it's possible you know, as a reasonably well paid screenwriter to kind of avoid real life altogether and I think <laughs> it's detriment you know you've got to actually be in touch with all of that stuff to really describe it properly uh, and, and weirdly, when we were writing Master Commander, Peter and I discovered that we were kind of writing our biographies in a weird way. <laughs> his life had been the captain of a ship, you know, sort of taking taking film crews into uncharted waters, you know, which it could be kind of a triumph or it could be a complete disaster, you know. And and my life had been um, the Doctor, you know, who's the uh, who's the kind of traditionally the voice of reason, you know, trying to hold back these people who are kind of you know, racing off into dangerous endeavors. And um, so, yeah, so we both knew the characters, even though they were fictional characters lifted from O'Brien, we both knew these people and the pressures they were under pretty well. Had you ever read O'Brien before you and Peter had embarked on this together? Well, he'd been recommended to me by a great friend in Britain who kept on kind of prevailing on me to 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 read them and I and I would always say oh look nobody's going to make this it's like it's um, <laughs> it's just too expensive. It's kind of uh, it's not worth considering as a movie. Naja would say oh just read it anyway because it's just brilliant brilliant literature, 
And so finally, when Peter rang up and said, uh, let's do this, um, I started reading all of them. And because we worked up at his place, which was uh, an hour and a bit from me in Sydney, lives up, he lives up the coast. And so um, I would just play uh, O'Brien books endlessly as I was driving to and from his place. And, and you become steeped in that wonderful language. Um, uh, so, and the, the series of books, there's 21 books, but uh, O'Brien didn't really, he wasn't, well, he wrote like a 19th century novelist where it was just kind of um, uh, one thing after another, you know, that kind of Dickensian way of just keep the kind of satisfied with one new event and another new event. And his books, as a result, are relatively plotless, but they're completely arresting because there's always <laughs> a book at the end of every chapter and you're always off on another voyage. So really the challenge of, of Master and Commander was to take all of these books and give them a framework that um, that would kind of um, feel like a, a three-act movie. I've been a fan of Peter since the, car that ate, the Cars That Ate Paris, and it so happened that we had the same agent with CAA in the States. And um, Peter was riding high at the time on having relatively recently made the Truman Show. Let's get off this mask, John. We can't see his face. Go to the cabin cam. Cabin cam. There, perfect. That's our hero shot. I need to talk to guys in the ferry. Come on, get it moving. Get it out of here. Come on. I'm using the bus driver. Bottom line is they can't drive the boat. They're actors. How do we stop them? going to be accessing the weather program now so hold on to your hats you got that no i think we're going to want to localize the storm over the boat you can get the coordinates for that there's no rescue boat you won't know what to do he'll turn back he'll be too afraid there she blows obviously a huge success and um uh, and so fox approached him and said hey how about the o'brien books and and now a reading from tom mcgregor's the making of master and commander the far side of the world a couple of years after his meeting with sam goldwyn the director was coming in to see tom rothman now at 20th century fox and rothman wasn't going to let this one go 
I really had to work up my nerve, he says in a rather endearing, unmogul-like fashion. There was a certain theatricality to the meeting. I'd had props make up what I imagined Jack's sword would look like and I had it behind my chair during the meeting. He said, recalls Peter Weir, there wasn't going to pitch me a story, but that he was going to give me a gift. I thought that was a rather good approach. Then, to my genuine surprise, he gave me the sword. I took it and said, O'Brien? He said yes. He wanted me to take command. So I asked him, he recalls with a grin, if I could keep the sword even if I didn't do the film because I wasn't going to do it. I said I couldn't do it and I'd already said no to it. I read all the books, he continues. I loved the series but I really didn't think Master and Commander would make a very good movie. I said if I were going to do O'Brien... I'd start somewhere in the middle with one of the long voyages and get to know these men when they were already friends. Tom told me to go away and do just that. You know, Peter is you know, one of those genius filmmakers who just seems to take a long while to settle on a subject, but when he settles on it, then he kind of is all in. And um, so he was looking for a writer or co-writer, and he um, uh, and he knew that I was working with George Miller on uh, on Happy Feet at the time, and uh, so the call game via my agents go up and meet Peter Weir. He's got an idea, and uh, yeah, we sat there near the ocean, um, up on a hill at his lovely house, and uh, bonded instantly, and uh, and off we went. It was it was a rare sort of uh, alignment of the planets, I suppose, because he was at that stage in his career where, um, you know, they would entrust him with this vastly impractical (laughs) billion-dollar project. And he had sufficient clout to hire a relatively unknown writer. He knew my work. I mean, I'd sent him scripts in the past, so he knew my writing, but, yeah. You know, we had time to immerse ourselves in them, and, and... what I've discovered working with filmmakers is that generally the most successful ones are the most incredibly modest and accommodating in that, you know, part of the talent of being a great director is just to be able to harness the energy of all the people you're working with. I think, I feel like part of that has to do with the fact that he is a collaborative filmmaker, um, and, you know, having listened to the commentaries on um, a bunch of different movies that he's put out, you know, some of the, uh, you know, obviously, I think my favorite is the picnic at Hanging Rock, because you get a really solid idea of where he's going to go in his career and the trajectory and like, what the foundational aspects of his filmmaking are. But you can see from those earliest days that he is a collaborative filmmaker, and that he surrounds himself with experts who are strange. Um, <laughs> And they know something that he doesn't know. And that's one of the things that I loved about like Picnic at Hanging Rock of him having, um, you know, a, a basically like a dramaturg um, who was there, who was in charge of just putting extra little touches onto the set um, to make sure that the actors 
could really feel like they were embodying this time period. The fact that like someone went in and put in uh, all these different clothes and, and undergarments and, and keepsakes in the drawers that we would never see, but the actors who pull out those drawers see it and feel it and get to have a kind of textural experience with the set. And I just think that having, you know, like that's just one thing where I'm like, that's mad. That's mad. Like, what? <laughs> you know, this is not like a high budget thing that you're doing, but you spend the extra time to like have a dramaturg on set for this to make the experience real for these actors. And and that's the kind of thing that I think, you know, even if he wasn't doing like a dramaturg in his later films, especially, you know, like big Hollywood ones, there are these little textural elements. Um to all of it that we probably can't even see that the actors are just kind of living within it and production design is just living within this this um ship for master and commander you know and and what a wild set that is what a beautiful wild set from the very first scene you know you're going to get something so totally different from any other kind of battleship um, adventure story. It is gorgeous. It feels like you're actually on a stage and he's, he's using kind of like the, these, uh, classical elements of theater and light design to, to have these, these people and these ladders and these nets and the shadows kind of cast on all the sails. And it feels like you're, you know, it, in like a Broadway play for a moment. Yes. And then of course, then you then you go into, you know, kind of like a, a more 3D lived in world. It doesn't feel like a set when you're there, but he just throws that in just to say, hey, it's gonna be a little bit different. When I first went to see Peter, he said, all right, tell me, how do you write a movie? Um, obviously he'd done, he'd, he'd, he'd written many movies or co-written movies before, but um, he wanted to know my process. So I said, well, I always just try and structure the story first, first in very simple terms and then in more and more complex terms. Um, and so um, we just need to get a big, uh, a big notice board that we can pin cards on and then we start writing down favorite moments from the books and then we'll find the order that we can place these in in a kind of a three-act structure. And so Peter typically, as I said, there's nothing by halves, he kind of went out and bought a eight foot by 10 foot <laughs> hardwood frame and put it on the wall of, uh, he's got a, he's got a property next to his house. Uh, it's up on a hill among trees and, uh, with, with ocean on three sides. And so, um, we're sort of in this place is the house is quite bare. Um, cause he just uses an office, but with the creaking of the trees all around us, it's like being on a ship. And, uh, and that became our kind of creative little um, cocoon. And the notice board goes up and then the, we use music a lot. And so the, the kind of cassette player comes in and, and bit by bit over the three months that we wrote the first draft or worked on the first draft together, um, we'd accumulate props because a lot of writing, as you know, is talking and acting, you know, so a hat would turn up on a telescope and a sword and we'd be doing bad Cornish accents and waggling the sword <laughs> at the fellow and playing out these things from O'Brien. And yeah, organically, and this is my process that, you know, the first of all, the very simple plot starts to emerge. Peter had chosen the far side of the world as being a, a relatively linear storyline. And that does kind of break into these three blocks, you know, beginning, middle and end. The beginning is the they sight the Asher on the enemy ship, which blows 
them out of the water, and uh, and then the middle section is uh, Captain Jack's uh, kind of uh, increasingly um, single-minded quest to try and track this ship down, you know, and all the challenges and costs that that inflicts on his crew, and and the third act, of course, is the is is they confront it and uh, and they win the battle. So once you've got that sort of okay, here's the shape of our film, and then you can start sort of adding in all the kind of the little events that will sort of make it sort of watchable. And of course, O'Brien with all that stuff, you know, from the I mean, normally I would just get books and do a pile of research on the period and the setting and the language, but O'Brien had done all that for us. He'd been spent a life reading nothing but 19th century literature and, and naval literature and so it was kind of was all there um, my technique is to um, is to try and simplify to try and keep two two things going at once one of which is a synopsis of the story which starts very simply and you and and if ever you get stuck my advice to young writers is keep on going back to the simplest form of the story and tell it to yourself again you know you, you have a synopsis running constantly on one side of the desk, you know, and then there's the actual script, you know. And the script is where you can actually just get into individual moments and let your mind kind of go free. And so, and and eventually those two elements of storytelling, the very structured shape of the story and the, the moments of just pure invention start speaking to each other. So you mentioned the spying. Uh, we actually changed the enemy ship um, from being a, a American privateer uh, to being a French privateer. As you know, the Americans fought their war of independence and before the before the French Revolution. So they were the kind of those two forces, the Americans and the French, were both in this early nineteenth-century period. They were both enemies of the British, but we're dealing uh, in our story with the Napoleonic Wars and O'Brien. Several books in which Stevens kind of work as a spy as well as being the ship's doctor is quite kind of front and center. And yes. so we had that notion that actually Stephen Maturin, for all his rather kind of bookish intellectual demeanor, is, a, is actually a bit of a dark horse with uh, Irish Catholic roots and, uh, <laughs> you know, and some very uh, left wing anti imperial kind of sentiments. And so, and he'd also been in that, in that world of, uh, of espionage. So anyway, that finally kind of starts sort of seeping into, okay, so um, we've made the enemy the French now, and so what is he? So, yeah, so you, um, people then have a, a kind of a reference point with Hitler um, in order to understand what a, an overseas tyrant who is threatening Britain amounts to, you know? And, and I think from, you can actually sketch that in in a few kind of lines of dialogue. And then the other challenge that, uh, the book gives us is that sea chases, and this is the whole story of the sea chase, they actually happen incredibly slowly. So, so to create another large sailing ship around the Horn would take weeks and months. Not It's not a matter of uh, hours or days. And so yes. um, one has to find a way of um, kind of generating suspense in such a long, drawn-out chase. And that is partly in giving people an understanding of the um, the challenges, you know, that when you can see the top sails of an enemy ship um, just above the horizon, the ship is still 30 miles away and it's going to take you, even if it was standing still, it's going to take you a day to catch up with it. 
And then when it's out of sight, there's all the kind of problems of um, navigation and catching other ships and finding it at slow speed in uh, uh, in the immensity of the ocean. And of course, what they did was that they would they would follow each other down the the normal route. So in this case, down the coast of South America, calling in at ports and getting intelligence on of where the other ship was ahead of them. Um, and then layered on top of that is all the wonderful uh, um, sort of social interaction. And this is actually what a lot of O'Brien's books is about, is about the, the, the social interaction between this sort of ill-assorted team of men on this little wooden world. Um, and it struck me actually afterwards that uh, many of Peter's best films are about enclosed worlds. Um, and the community living inside them. If you think you're witness, you think the Truman Show is so good at these enclosed worlds. And, uh, and so this sort of played to his strength, I think. It's more of a vibe with him. It really is more of, uh, you know, I think the first Peter Weir's uh, film I saw was Gallipoli. Yeah. And I was probably, oh, I was 16 or 17 or, or Somewhere in there, what and it a, just what a time to see that movie! <laughs> totally, totally blew me away. Just like the emotion of it, and the the way the uh, the intensity of it, and the but even even beyond that, there was there's just the it, it there's something in Weir's filmmaking and his I don't know if, it's, if you'd call it his gaze or his his I think it's more his spiritual outlook. You know his his preoccupations when it comes to uh, the the more metaphysical side of just about any uh, any relationship or situation that comes through in his filmmaking and really really spoke to me deeply because the I think uh, not long after that I think I saw the last wave and that's explicitly about the supernatural and uh, you know uh, metaphysics and and just that sense of mystery and um, mystery and the uncanny that he evokes in that film. And of course, in Picnic and Picnic uh, on Hanging Rock. I mean, that's like the ultimate, like, I remember seeing that and just being like, just completely stunned. And, you know, with it's, it's always coupled with visual beauty in his case. Yeah, so it, it's, it's really that, that side of where for me, I mean, you know, and, and then, you know, when he kind of starts moving to more like, you know, quote unquote, mainstream things like, I remember the year, the year of living dangerously is one of my all time favorite films, period. I, I would just say that the first movie that I saw of Peter Weir's was Witness. I saw it in the theaters. I think I was 12 years old and it left a sort of an indelible mark on me. I was a huge fan, of course, of Indiana Jones and I went because of Harrison Ford. And of course, Witness was something completely different and I wasn't expecting and it piqued my curiosity. I went backwards and forwards with him, you know, I went back and I watched Gallipoli and I think, you know, not 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 a week goes by that I don't think of the ending of Gallipoli. It's left a mark, a uh, year of living dangerously, uh, you know, and then something like Last Wave, even that's so uh, deeply embedded with the land and the story of the land, the story of place, uh, really remarkable stuff. I think it's Richard Chamberlain, isn't it? And, yeah. and, you know, the, you know, I don't know that I'd seen very many movies at that point in my life that had such a down ending and they had such a you know sort of strong sense of folklore uh, 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 uh attached to it as that and immenseness of the uh, of the of the last wave uh, killed me but something always so 
poetic and lyrical about Peter Weir's work. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's like watching um, something tactile almost. And, you know, Master Commander is one of my all-time favorite movies. Uh, you know, it's easily one of the best movies of the last 20 years. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's a grand scale. There's a historical backdrop to it. But at the same time, there's a, such an intimacy in the relationships and the feeling of, 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 of camaraderie and bonhomie between uh, Russell Crowe and, and, and his crew. There's a, you know, there's a good training video in there somehow, uh, somewhere for management styles and approaches. <laughs> Um, of course, beautifully shot, as you would expect from Peter Weir. And, yeah. you know, and, 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 I, and I must say, one of my favorite movies of the 90s is Fearless, uh, the uh, Jeff Bridges, Isabella Rossellini film. It's, yes. uh, you know, I love the story of it. I'm sure you're familiar where they took a broken script. You know, he said, hey, give me the most broken script that you have. And they gave him that one. He said, yep, there's, I got it. And he made <laughs> truly a masterpiece. Uh, you know, and, and the, the, the feeling in that movie of, of a person who is, uh, you know, experiencing a crisis in the middle of his life and, and reassessing the things that are valuable and important to him has remained a vital touchstone for me since the day that I saw it. It, it has aged at the same pace, I think, that I've aged. And so it's a beautiful film. You know, it's still one of my favorite movies of all time. But um, something about Peter Weir, he is... Uh, Precious, you know, uh, of course, Picnic and Hanging Rock, of course, even all the way back to the Cars That Ate Paris. This stuff is um, unbelievably grand, uh, un unbelievably large and feeling when you get get inside of it. Uh, you know, Dead Poet Society, of course, another touchstone for my oh. misspent youth. And, uh, <laughs> you know, all, all of these films, one by one. And, you know, I think the, the, the greatest tragedy for me is this is that he's he's only made those films i mean there there's you know just there's not enough there, there's what like, like like a hot dozen and <laughs> you know this is a guy that i wish had made a, you know two films a year sort of done a steven soderbergh thing or something he's one of the grandmasters and i think we're 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 we're, we're coming to that place maybe um too late uh unfortunately but yeah master and commander is one of those that should have been I, I'm not the only one to say it, but you know it should have been a franchise. That that's the movie that I wanted to see. Ten of those, you know. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I know they're big fans of Fast and Furious and everything. And God bless you. But Master and Commander <laughs> should have been a franchise. It should have been. And uh, you know, I know they're doing a prequel now. It's whatever. I, I want to see Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany again in, in those roles. And uh, you know, it got me reading the Patrick O'Brien series. It, it, it is a it's remarkable it's a remarkable piece um and and singular almost you know i think it's one of those things that appeared in the middle of you know nobody's watching nautical maritime films pirate movies are dead what the hell are you doing you know and um suddenly it comes out and just it's it's a master filmmaker at the peak of his game uh gallipoli was the first movie that ever traumatized me and i don't think i ever really recovered from it <laughs> and i'm still upset that they played it in school <laughs> The, the ending of that movie, because it's like, the whole movie is like this adventure, we're gonna go to war, and then it just like ends right as war starts, and then just dead. It's one of those just, like, I don't think it's actually possible to make an, they say it's not possible to make an anti-war movie, but I think Peter Weir pulled it off. Because yes. no one watches that movie then thinks, I wanna go to war. <laughs> it's just, you have more respect for people who went, but you're also like, I'm not going. <laughs> 
Peter Weir has a very particular visual style that I don't think I've ever seen replicated fully. And I think it's because it kind of comes out of his desire for experimentation and his uh, experience, I think, in the theater world too. Um, And the ways that he can kind of incorporate so many different facets of his life and all of these interests into, into one beautiful moving package that doesn't follow the same kind of narrative rules or other rules that that other people follow even when he's doing Hollywood movies or you know like the more obscure ones there's there's just something kind of strange and peculiar about them that is only from Peter Weir I think you have covered some really titanic filmmakers and some really titanic films so far but I I truly think what makes Peter Weir special and what makes you doing this one special is we don't talk about Peter Weir that way. And we should. Peter Weir is one of those guys who I don't get why he isn't a bigger name, why he isn't more in that rarefied air. Because I think film for film, he's one of our very best filmmakers. He has brought his A game repeatedly to (laughs) many properties. There are films of his that I hold very dear fearless uh you know uh, the mosquito coast i will fight somebody if they talk bad about the mosquito coast it's man i love that movie but in general i just think he is a special filmmaker a smart lyrical um hallucinatory filmmaker he's a very dreamy filmmaker and i don't think he gets his due i think master and commander what makes it special is it's a time machine you put that movie on and it is the closest thing to virtual reality in terms of how it felt to live that life, how it felt to be in naval combat. There's no movie, no movie that captures naval combat from a more experiential level than that. And on top of it, it's one of the great friendship stories with two movie star performances that are through the roof. Um, If you're gonna pick a film where he really brings every one of his skills to the table, it's Master and Commander. I think you picked the right one, man. To tell you the, the tale of how we kind of, um, we wrote our first draft and I kind of mapped it all out following the, the, the central part of um, um, the far side of the world. And in the, in the middle of the far side of the world, the, the, the center of the story is carried by a three-way love triangle of all things between the gunner who's brought his wife on board and the wife, and the wife who has an affair with, the, uh, with uh, Lieutenant Column. Yes. Um, and uh, the wife then at one point comes to Maturin, uh, the Paul Bethany character, and, and confesses that she's pregnant and asks him to do an abortion. And because his, of his Catholic relief, uh, belief, he refuses to do it. And so the affair becomes public, and there's a dreadful murder suicide in which Colin kills himself, and, uh, and the captain is, and, and, the, and the gunner is killed. And then the, the ship sails on, and the, and the plot of chasing the after on uh, the enemy ship resumed. And so after I'd written the first draft and sent it to Peter and he had to take a while to think about it and he, uh, he rang back and said, I've got bad news. I think we've got to lose the woman. And I, I said, really? Because the woman is the whole, that, kind of, that is the whole center of the film. What else do we have? And, and he said, well, and it was, and it's just kind of this great insight into storytelling. But well, Really, this is a story about the friendship between these two men, and she's such a bright light. And that, 
and and the and the events surrounding her are so dramatic that that's going to take away from what really interested Peter, which was the relationship between the men aboard this ship. So when you take the woman out of that um, central role in the story, then what you're left with is a much more subtle story about two men, one of whom is interested in travel for the sake of expanding our knowledge of the world, and the other who is interested in travel as a as a as a, as a sort of uh, as a means to an end, as a way of kind of uh, dominating the seas and kind of defeating the enemy. And the argument about that, that kind of philosophical question of why are we why are we sailing the world? Why are we spending all this effort? And Jack's argument that it's nothing to do with expanding your knowledge of the world, it's to do with beating the bad guys. And, uh, and Stephen's idea that, well, just beating the bad guys is a very limited way to see what humans are on the planet for. Um, and so that clash of left and versus right-wing philosophy uh, becomes what the movie's about. And it was only we only discovered that when we took out um, the center of O'Brien's story and, and then had to work out what we were left with. Yeah, and what you were left with was so utterly profound. And like one yeah, of no, the yeah, one of the key one of the key resonances of this movie is that it's it's so utterly about this is you know all these expressions of masculinity. And, yeah, yeah. And yeah. and all of the nuances and the beauty of those relationships in in the face of everything that they go through. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember I walking in to see Master and Commander in a theater. And with no connection to the books whatsoever, with no particular love or hate for epic naval adventures, <laughs> with uh, with no sense of really what you know where starboard versus port is, <laughs> uh, and really just going because I was like, it's Peter Weir. I'll see anything that Peter Weir does. I had yes. been a long time Peter Weir fan since you know seeing Gallipoli as a young formative lad uh, with my parents, uh, also in a theater because I'm that old. But I remember walking out, what is it, like two and a half, three hours later and feeling like, oh my God, like this is how, this is how you do this movie. This is how you do a, a massive naval uh, epic in the 21st century. You know, and it feels like such a 20th century movie. It feels like something David Lean would have done or tried to do, you know, back in the mid 60s, the pre-Ryan, let's just call it the pre-Ryan's daughter days of David <laughs> yeah. Lean, uh, when he still had that kind of currency. And even then, he might not have succeeded as as well as as well as uh, Peter Weir does here. I mean, it's one of those things. Again, I I am not uh, I'm not a seafaring man, sir. <laughs> but there is a sense of authenticity. There's a sense of really watching uh, a, a genuine dedication to recreating history unfold on a big screen in front of you that can't help but inspire just genuine admiration and awe. Podcaster and Commander is produced by Blake Howard on the far side of the world 